Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we are recovering from COVID. Um, at least Karen is. I'm still try- doing my matrix, avoiding it as much as possible, but I, I eventually, I don't know. Um, I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks. With me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing so much better. I do still have, you know, the lingering cough and all that, but I just, someone asked me the other day, like, oh, how do you feel? I said, oh, I'm feeling about probably 95%. And they're like, wow, that's really good. And I'm like, no, no, no. But you have to understand I'm never at a hundred. So it's 95% of whatever I normally feel. So (laughs) well, that's, that's an improvement. That is is an improvement. That's very good. Yes. I was saying, I was saying before we started recording, you sound more like your regular self. Thank you. Um, yeah, I I was out to dinner with some friends last night, one of whom listens to one of my other podcasts. And he was just like, yeah, I was listening to your bullet train episode and you sounded like you did not feel well. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I should probably not have been recording podcasts. <laughs> but oh, well. <laughs> but you did. I did. And apparently I was really good at it. I just sounded terrible. <laughs> You know, you know, I don't think that you particularly sounded terrible. You said you sounded like you had a cold, like that was the, which, you know, is, is not normal. Right. Right. But, um, but you sound more like upbeat and, and awake and everything right now, which is understandable given that, you know, you had COVID. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm glad that you are recovering. Thank you. Yeah. I went back to work this week and it's, uh, it was funny. The first couple of days I was still wearing a mask just because I do have a cough, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, then after that, I was just like, I'm not, I'm going to take a break from this because now I'm like, I have COVID superpowers. I, I can do this for like <laughs> two months. I can't get it again. <laughs> you, you do. I mean, yeah, you do have like, cause you've, you've been vaccinated, et cetera. And then you also have that extra boost from, from actually having had it. So yeah, yeah you, you do definitely have a, a degree of protection there good for you where do i get my i survived the rona t-shirt like is that- i do i think that the government should just like print stickers or right. or t-shirts or something that you can at least you know only kind of- for the people who tried to avoid it <laughs> yeah the people who are like eh, covid doesn't exist it's a myth you know yeah those people exactly. don't get a sticker <laughs> <laughs> It's a serious disease, everybody. It is still out there. Please wear your masks, get vaccinated and boosted. If you're not vaccinated by now, I don't even know what to tell you. Like, my God, seriously. Yeah. Like, it's- well, and here's the thing, too. Like, people are still trying to say, oh, it's just like a really bad cold. And you know what? For some people, that is their experience. That was not mine. Mine was a little bit more severe than that. And I just think, like, I found myself just wondering, man, if I had not been vaccinated and boosted, yeah, exactly. And there seems to be a lot of stories like that, that there are a lot of people who have been vaccinated and boosted and then and then get it and are like, 
what yeah. if I hadn't, right? What if I hadn't done this? I can't imagine how terrible this would be. And, you know, and there, there are a lot of people that have, that are not vaccinated and boosted and get it and, and get through it and are fine. But it does seem like one of those, one of those viruses that, you know, you, you don't want to go in this without some kind of protection on your immune system, some kind of immune experience, which is what vaccinations exactly. are giving you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yes, get vaccinated, everybody, you know, wear your masks where you can. It's a good idea. Yep. Uh, anyways, moving on, it is fucking hot here in New York. So I have finally turned on the air conditioning. That's exciting. So just, just let everybody know it's fucking hot in New York city right now. Um, it's after a, hot in California too, after a week of like gorgeous, nice, you know, high seventies, low eighties weather, it is finally humid and hot. Um, so I'm having the true New York summer experience for a little while. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just it's when just no hot here all the time. Yeah. See, whenever I think about moving to California, then I hear about like, oh, it's hot. Also wildfires. Yeah, also, <laughs> also like LA might become submerged at some point. Although that's something that's going to happen to New York too. So yeah, but I live in the Heights. So I'm, I have a degree of protection. Yeah. <laughs> I could just buy myself a canoe. There you go. Perfect. Um, so to start out with today, we're not going to go into too much about this, this whole ongoing saga. Um, just, but just because I felt like, because we've been talking about Ezra Miller for several weeks now, I feel like that we should, you know, continue to update people as to what is going on with Ezra Miller, particularly given that I've had, I've heard from a couple of people listening to the podcast that they had no idea who Ezra Miller was until we began talking about him. Mm. Um, I'm jealous. Uh, so Ezra Miller, as we know, is the actor uh, who plays The Flash. And there has been a lot of back and forth about whether or not The Flash movie is even going to come out. Um, and recently, finally, and, you know, we've been talking about this, actually, you know, how is WB going to handle this? How is Miller going to handle this? Uh, they have come out with a statement saying, uh, Miller's come out with a statement saying, having recently gone through a time of intense crisis, I now understand that I'm suffering complex mental health issues and have begun ongoing treatment. This is something that Miller said in the statement. So Miller, as far as I know, has not actually been interviewed. There's not been like a direct, you know, they haven't give a, given a press conference or anything right. like that. Um, yeah, this was a statement issued through a representative. So who knows how much Miller actually was involved in the crafting of this statement? Yeah, and... And this this has been one of the things that, you know, people were speculating that the WB was, was going to wind up doing, which is try to basically get Miller treatment, get Miller into some kind of a treatment program. Um, and then when it came, when time, the time came for the Flash press stuff to begin um, to, you know, roll them out uh, for a limited number of interviews and things like that. So on the one hand, you're kind of like, well, it's a good thing that this person who's obviously has some mental health issues, obviously, um, just based upon their, their very erratic behavior, not, not just based upon the crimes that they may or may not have committed. Um, so it's good that they're, that they're getting help, right? At the same time, this does feel very like <laughs> PR, Right. So we're not really getting, you know, Miller has not has not actually appeared in public to talk about any of this. Um, How much of this is is, 
you know, them voluntarily getting getting help, them being told that they're getting help. And how much of it is just a PR firm telling us that they're getting help? Right. Um, and th- this on top of the fact that there are actual crimes, like real crimes, like kidnapping and brainwashing and assault and home invasion and uh, possibly starting a cult. That's right. one that's like there's like this whole thing about maybe Ezra Miller may have started a cult in like Finland or something like that. Iceland. Mm-hmm. Iceland. And and on the one hand, I'm like, okay, it's good that they're getting help, but also crime, like actual crime that that's is thing, yeah. that's serious crime. It's not like you know, shoplifting or something like that. This is like serious, serious real crime. Um yeah, so do you have any thoughts about that, Karen? We we've kind of been through a lot of a lot of the various allegations against them. So here's what I will say. Because I mean, there's not a lot to say because I don't know what's really happening behind the scenes. I don't know what sort of treatment program they're in, and I don't know what the legal ramifications are for some of those crimes that they did ha- ha- that, you know, that they were already arrested for earlier this year and stuff. So I'm not I'm not sure. But what I will say is that um what I find interesting is how and someone else pointed this out on twitter too it's this like for us we're sitting here looking at the story going like wow we really don't know what to think about this you know hopefully they're really getting help hopefully this is going to help start making some changes for them and and bringing some uh restitution and some you know safety i guess to the people that they've harmed um reuniting some families and whatnot but what I find interesting was just watching the way people reacted to this story and how for months people have been saying like, they need help, they need help. And then the statement comes out, they're getting help. And then it's like, well, but that's not enough. And it's like, wait, but <laughs> what do you want actually then? Do you, I, and so I really think what it is is that people have been rooting for the scandal and rooting for the drama. And now that there seems to be a pause in that, they're a little bit disappointed. Yeah, I, I mean, and we, and I, one of the reasons why why we've been talking about it so much has been that this there's just been this escalation. You know, we were joking last week about you know Ezra Miller trying to commit crimes in all, in all fifty states. You know, yeah, and and there is like a a it, it's so odd. Like the there's so many odd things that have been going on. So it isn't these are serious crimes, but at the same time, everything that's happening is strange. Um. And yeah, I, I do think that there is a sort of enjoyment of the the scandal and of the what are they going to do next kind of thing. Um, yeah, which really we shouldn't we shouldn't have these these this is real, right? This, these are real people's lives. Exactly. Um, but it is the way that we we tend to react to celebrity and and particularly again these these kinds of scandals where someone is obviously having mental health problems mm-hmm. and. But what we see is bizarre behavior and kind of fascinated by that. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, we'll see what else happens. You know, I do hope that that they're actually getting help and this is not just a, a PR stunt from yeah. uh, Warner Brothers. Yeah, I hope this is real. I hope it's legit and I hope that they do get some help. But I also still hope that this isn't used as a substitute for actually yeah. facing the consequences of their actions. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing. And when some of these things come out, you know, I'm kind of reminded about, um, you know, some of the scandals say that surrounded Mel Gibson, 
And the this whole like, well, I, you know, I'm getting help for I'm, I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just like, but that's not the problem, really. Like the problem right. might one of the issues might be that you are an alcoholic and you should get help for being an alcoholic. But then we kind of say like, oh, well, he's an alcoholic. Therefore, the things that he says about black people and Jews and women is totally fine. It's like that. There are alcoholics who do not become violent. There are alcoholics who do not start spouting off things about Jewish people. Um, so, so yeah, we, we tend to, you know, oh, they're getting help. Oh, that means that everything that's been going on. Yeah. Everything is fine now. And it's just like, "Mm, I don't think that it is. I think that there are, there are, it should be at least consequences for one's actions and one's behavior. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we will continue to, to probably discuss that. I'm, I have no doubt that this is not the end of the story really. Yeah. Uh, I just, this does make me think a little bit more of maybe this story will not end in a big tragedy, but who knows? I hope, I, I mean, I hope that it doesn't. At the same time, I, I still, I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I still suspect that, that there's going to be more to what's going on because they need help beyond anything else, I think. Um, and I, I, I don't know. We'll see. We will. Um, so let us move on to talk about this is this is a good segue uh, to talk about problematic people. And yes. this this was something that kind of came into my head because uh, uh, there was a recent Twitter thread and I'm not going to link to it. I'm not going to say who posted it or anything like that. I think that this poor girl has probably gotten a lot more than her fair share of um, kind of people piling on. Uh, but the, the Twitter thread basically was a spreadsheet of quotation marks, problematic authors. And this ranged from authors who are, you know, legitimately accused of having been, um, uh, of having committed sexual assault, of having been pedophiles all the way to Shakespeare, (laughs) who, you know, was was like, well, Shakespeare was racist. He was anti-Semitic, et cetera. And one of the problems that I think a lot of people had with this list was, was that, that it, 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 just, it just, it lumped everything together in a way that isn't that unusual for this time period. And that's what kind of got me about it was that the things that she was saying and this sort of basic, you know, let's break down all of these different authors, again, ranging from contemporary writers who are still writing to you know, Shakespeare to, to, you know, John Milton. <laughs> Um, and everybody in between. I think William Wordsworth was on there as well. Uh, and and that, that was the problem, that there was this kind of, I think that the idea behind it was we need to recognize the, pe- the people that we've kind of canonized who are also problematic um, and the, pro- the problems in their work, which I think is a totally legitimate thing to do, but it's lumping all of this together and then also not really having honest critical argument about this issue. So it, it, of course, it got me thinking about some of the things that we've talked about on this podcast and about problematic art and problematic writers and also where you draw the line between applying um, between applying the, the work that someone produces and their own personal um, issues, the things that we know that they have personal issues about or what we assume they have personal issues about. Uh, and while I do, I'm not 100%, you know, we have to separate the art from the artist. I still have that mentality of we need to look at the art as the art 
and at times set aside what we know or don't know or assume um, about the person who actually wrote it. So, and a good example is William Shakespeare, about whom we know very little. Right. Uh, Might not even have been a real person. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, and so a lot of, so what we have for Shakespeare primarily is the work and how we interpret the work. And I think that that's, that's not um, true in the same way for most filmmakers or for most actors or writers, et cetera, because we do tend to know a lot more about them and about their, their lives, but we make these assumptions about their psychology, about the reasons why they make the films that they do, what their films say about them. Um, and, and that can, can lead to some very problematic interpretations. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of discuss that a little bit and see what you thought of all of this, Karen. I know that you you were not up on the Twitter drama. Yeah, I saw some comments related to it, but I never saw the original post or thread or whatever. So I was like, I don't really know what this is in reference to, and that might be a good thing. But <laughs> yeah, the the post the post got pulled. Um, fairly quickly because because unfortunately because people were piling on and um and every, it was everything ranging from you're you're dumb you don't understand what you're talking about this is cancel culture to you know more i think more legitimate arguments about um you know dealing with with problematic art but i i think that when it comes to film and we've talked a lot about problematic filmmakers um, but when it, it comes to film, we really need to step away from some of this very simplistic critique mm. and begin to understand that at some level, all artists is problematic. Yeah. Um, all film is problematic because we live in a problematic culture. We live in a culture of white supremacy, of misogyny, of racism, of um, uh yeah, just just of of imperialism, of white male dominance, et cetera. And that is a reality, right? That's not something that we can really do anything about because that is the culture that we exist in. And that is the culture in which a lot of things are made. But I thought it was very interesting to to consider some of the older films that we've talked about. Um, and how things that were not considered particularly racist or sexist in say 1930 are considered racist and sexist now and how much we apply our own view of uh of you know more of morality of progressivism etc to things outside of their historical and cultural context yeah i think we also and we've talked about this before too i think we also have to acknowledge that a lot of times when we say, well, this wasn't considered racist or sexist back in this day, it's not that it wasn't. It's just that it was more acceptable. Uh, it was more acceptable to do those yeah. things um, at the time. And even, I mean, there a lot of like we've looked at we've looked at historical examples of where people, you know, protested Gone with the Wind and stuff like that yeah. in the 30s. And but it's just but that didn't stop it from becoming super popular, you know. And, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. One of the things that I've been thinking about just with this whole issue is just going back to what you were talking about, about just kind of lumping all problematic stuff into one yeah. category, because like, I'll see people who will refuse to watch a movie that a certain person or, or 
a couple of people are in because of their political views, but they'll have no problem watching a movie that was, you know, directed by Woody Allen or something like that. And it's just uh-huh. like, now wait a second. <laughs> You're saying that their political opinions are more significant than the fact that someone is, you know, committing actual sex crimes and things like that. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. I well, just, and that's, yeah. I mean, my, my, my personal favorite example of that is, is Polanski, right? Mm-hmm. Who, uh, whose work I love. I, I absolutely yeah. love Roman Polanski's films. Fantastic director. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's, it's difficult to say that sometimes because people are like, you what? And then, and then they immediately go off on the, you know, the very legitimate objections to Polanski. Yes. Um, but, but I think that that is one of the problems. And there is a divide between what we as individuals are comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and so I completely understand refusing to watch any of Polanski's films, period, because of what he did. Um, yeah. I, I understand that. At the same time, I also think that we need to note the fact that Polanski or Woody Allen um, are incredibly important and influential filmmakers for their generations. And did make films that, you know, if, you know, if you talk about someone like Polanski, you you don't have films like, I don't like it, but you don't have films like Hereditary without Rosemary's Baby. Right. Um, without that film, not the book, the film and the film that Polanski produced. So we have to kind of grapple with the fact one way or another that a lot of our cinematic culture is based on very problematic things made by problematic people. Um, the same thing can be very true. You know, Gone with the Wind is a very influential film for good or bad, right? What, however we want to talk about that. And in fact, it has actually inspired a lot of reactions to it. Um, and, and so at a certain point, we have to be willing to grapple with those things. We have to be willing to grapple with Gone with the Wind, whether or not we like it. And that's not necessarily saying we need to sit down and watch it as a pure, purely as, as entertainment, and there's been some good arguments made that films like Gone with the Wind or Birth of a Nation should not be shown as on like television stations or as pieces of entertainment, but they need to be shown within their cultural context. Um, but they are still, for anyone who is interested in film or is even just wants to understand the, the, um, the contemporary American culture, you have to be able to go back to those things and watch them and experience them and maybe be uncomfortable with them. You can't just throw them out. Right, exactly. We have to, we have to engage with this and understand it it comes back to anybody who wants to make film or write about film or just engage with it on a more academic level beyond passive entertainment. You have to be able and willing to confront things that are challenging and not just, oh, this is, you know, this is a really complicated movie, but like complicated people that are making those movies too, making the art and, um, you know, and also this expands out. You said this whole thing started with a list of problematic authors. And I think that, you know, we look at the music industry, which has got all kinds of problems too. And, and books and, you know, journalism, all of it. Like you have to, if you're really going to invest your time into an, you know, any sort of artistic endeavor, you have to be able to examine the art and the artist is part of that and their 
experiences and who they are should be part of the consideration when you're evaluating the art. That's not, that's not unfair, but to just sit, to just dismiss and say like, this art is not worth evaluating because I don't like that person or because they've done things I'm not comfortable with. That's where it becomes a problem. That's where people become untrue to what they supposedly um, love in terms of, you know, the chosen art fields that they're into. Well, well, it, it does become, I, and I mentioned this briefly, uh, it does become kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater uh, yeah, because definitely. you're you're taking, you're essentially saying like there's nothing, if, if we label these, right, and say, like, okay, we're going to throw them out, just like, okay, well, you're throwing out a large section of history. And it's a history that might not be good history. It's a history that might be very uncomfortable. It's a history that we might hate. But how, you know, if you do that, if you do that, if you have that kind of a puritanical view of what art is and what art means, that's not that far away from burning books. That's not that far away from saying we're never going to watch these films again because I don't like them or right. they make me uncomfortable or they're representative on, on the more progressive side. They're representative of bad things that are part of our history. It's just like we cannot ignore those bad things because that's how we learn about them. Um, it also makes it a lot more likely for history to repeat itself Yeah, when we do not take the time to understand not just the history, but the culture surrounding, surrounding it. Yeah. Well, and, and it goes into, in, in a lot of ways, you know, we've talked about people who refuse to watch movies made before 1980 or whatever. And one of the objections that you often hear, um, particularly from, from uh, more marginalized, for people from more marginalized communities is, uh, well, I don't watch those films because they're racist, they're sexist, et cetera. It's just like, okay, fair, you know, absolutely. And you shouldn't be forced to watch anything that makes you uncomfortable as a piece of entertainment. But you're also, again, lumping in all of these different works and all of this complexity into this single thing that you're just declining to experience. Right. Um, and I think, you know, to, to relate it to something that is available right now, actually, um, there is a series that is on Criterion Channel right now called Hollywood Chinese. And it's dealing, it's, it begins with a documentary, a very good documentary called Hollywood Chinese, I believe, um, that sort of examines the tropes and the, the, the actors and the performers and the various representations of particularly Chinese and just generally Asian American um, actors on screen in older Hollywood. And one of the main stars of this is obviously uh, Anna Mae Wong, who's probably one of the best known, certainly, um, uh, Chinese actor in in Hollywood. I I think that she's Chinese American. Mm -hmm. Um, But if so, you can watch a lot of these films. And what Criterion Channel has done has been to place them in historical context to say, like, these are problematic. These are not just, you know, nice pieces of entertainment that are really positive representations. These have problematic elements to them. Some of them are really problematic. Um, But what's really fascinating about it is particularly about Anna Mae Wong, and I was watching one of her films last night, actually, uh, is that despite the the serious problems, and a lot of this shit is racist, so you're just like, wow, that's, that's, that's some racism right there. At the same time, she, in her on-screen persona and in her performances, gets to to represent um, some really complex characters. And she gives complexity to these characters that could otherwise be incredibly one-note and tropes, stereotypes, racism, et cetera. Um, And 
so on the one hand, you're like, well, we don't want to look at these films as like aspirational. But at the same time, some of them are quite surprising, actually, in the progressivism for the 1930s. And uh, some of them are very surprising in terms of the emotions and the performances that she specifically gets out of these characters that would otherwise be, um, first of all, probably played by white people uh, in, in yellow face. And then second of all, would be completely stereotypical in one note. And so there's there's a lot of tension there. There's a lot of problems there. But it's it's something, again, that we have to grapple with. We can't just say like, OK, all the 1930s were incredibly racist against Chinese people. It's just like, yes. But also, here are some really good and really interesting representations that maybe give the lie to that a little bit and are more complex than we want to give them credit for. I don't really have anything to add to it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that, my, that the conclusion is, is always, and we've talked about this kind of thing a lot, but the conclusion is always that we can't, making these, these blanket statements and sort of being like, here are all the problematic people. You're at a certain point, you're gonna be like, okay, well, we're gonna throw out all art right. then. Because you know, if, if it isn't an, a problematic individual, then it's a problematic culture. Because again, at least in terms of, of Western society, and to be honest, a lot of Eastern society, it is racist, it's imperialist, it's sexist. Um, a lot of the good art that is made from feminist or progressive um, uh, perspectives is in part a reaction to that dominant society. And you have to understand at some level the dominant society. You don't have to like it, but you have to understand it in order to understand where those other movements are coming from and yeah. the and the art that is being reacted to, right? I One of the examples that, that I thought of also was um, H.P. Lovecraft, who is all kinds of problematic. Without H.P. Lovecraft, you don't get Guillermo del Toro. Mm -hmm. And... It does that excuse H.P. Lovecraft to say like, oh, 100%, we should be totally fine with everything that he wrote? No, not at all. Um, but it's something that we have to grapple with. We have to understand Lovecraft in order to understand El Toro. Yeah, that's a good point. So, all right. Just wanted to, to make a mention of, you did. of that. Um, so let's see, what is it? What is a good segue here? I have two other things that I really wanted to well, talk speaking about. Of people just being problematic. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of critics being idiots. Um, yes. So there was another little Twitter kerfluffle uh, because this is where I find all of my kerfluffles <laughs> that, that went on really, really like briefly. And it's one of those things that you're like, this is really easy to dunk on. But at the same time, so many people behave like this. I think that that's one of the things that that bothers me about some of this stuff is that it isn't the individual really um, behaving stupidly. It's the fact that you see, we see this again and again, and so many different people, there's obviously a culture that is, that reinforces this and reinforces the, you know, if I get five minutes into a film and I'm bored, I should, you know, just not watch it. Um, and this particular person, this was in direct reference to the film RRR, which I don't understand how you could turn on RRR and be like, I am bored. I will turn it off now. Right. Um, I just don't get that. Like, and, and, but, but his, his attitude was that he was finally sitting down to watch it. And this is what he said. We're over three minutes into it. And it's still just credits. 
I'm giving it like two more minutes, then I'm tapping out. And I'm like, oh, you watched a whole three minutes of a movie. Oh, yeah. Did you not see the tweet that came after that? I did see the tweet that came after that. This was just the beginning. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so he, he, I believe he got a full 15 minutes into it, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Before he finally and, was just like, I'm out. And I want to say this about RRR. First of all, the credits are very exciting. Um, yeah. Second of all, That's I don't think credits I've seen in a movie in a while. I don't think that they're three minutes long. I don't recall the credits being that like I was not sitting there going like, when is the movie going to start? Um, but, you know, whatever. You might be you might be bored by the credits. That is something that you can you know, we do have a button that you can move through those those credits um, if you really just don't want to watch them. But then to be like, oh, I got 15 minutes in and it's bombastic and it's boring. And it's like, you know, is this guy fighting a tiger? It's just like, are you honestly complaining about this? Um, yeah, his his like actual official tapping out tweet said tapped out of RRR got to about the 15 minute mark when one single guard took on and beat up a mob of 1000 men all by himself. Maybe the rest of the movie is amazing, but it already lost my interest. You must be the most boring person on the planet then if that lost your interest. Well, I, I, I do think, you know, so, so beyond just dunking on this one particular guy who Which is, is stupid. just fun. Like, I don't <laughs> normally do this with people who not into a movie, but he was just so vocal and smug about it. That's the thing. <laughs> just like, mm. <laughs> well, yeah, no, ex- exactly. And I, and I think that, you know, I've, I've complained before about people, um, uh, live tweeting the first watch of a film so if he's already tweeting at the three minute mark right and then he tweets again at the 15 minute mark he's spending an awful lot of time looking at his phone or looking at a computer than he is actually watching the film Mm -hmm. um and and i always and yes i know some people will like pause it and and write things etc i'm always like do not live tweet your first watch of a film like if you if this is your second or third watch go for it but if it's your first watch watch the goddamn movie because I swear to God, some of the complaints that I've heard about films have come from people who are watching it for the first time and are tweeting about it. It's just like, maybe you're not actually paying attention to what happens. And that's why you're confused. Um, But, but yeah, I I mean, one of his tweets too, though, he says, (laughs) Holy shit. I never thought saying I watched a movie for a few minutes, realized it wasn't for me. And so decided to watch something else would make so many people lose their collective minds. Like, dude, that is not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, and I, I have to say, you're taking a film that is that has been pretty widely praised. Yeah. And watching 15 minutes of it and complaining about it. Right. Uh, and, you know, if you, if it's, here's the thing, if it's not, it's a, if you turn on a film, just as a viewer, if you turn on a film and you watch a little bit of it and you're like, you know what, I'm not enjoying this. This is not for me. Fine. That's mm-hmm. totally fair. I think that that's, I think it's totally fine to turn off a movie that you're not into. Yes. Yeah. Um, but first of all, if you are a, a critic or a film pundit, um, what movie pundit, uh, or, or someone that like is actually interested in cinema, Turning off a film 15 minutes into it is not a good look. It's essentially saying like, I won't even, you know, especially a three hour film. It's right. like, you know, I'm not even going to give this film a half hour of my time. 
the length of a television episode mm-hmm. um, to see if it's if it's really for me and then and then to decide you know I want to I want to continue to watch this I want to not the other thing is just not being aware or understand the concept of genre and I do think RRR you know we've talked about it is is a crazy movie in a lot of ways like it does have this sort of um epic mythic elements to it right so the whole thing of a single guard taking on a thousand men that kind of thing that's that's something that we're more used to seeing in like a captain america movie but maybe not a guard that is kind of posited as being a quote regular guy right mm-hmm. um but this is a particular genre of film it's not meant to be realistic Right. We're not meant to actually think, ah, he once fought a thousand guards. Right. It's mythic. It's 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 a legendary kind of story. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what it's doing. And so if you're not willing to engage with. What the film genre is trying to do. Then you're not you're not a particularly good film critic, you're not a particularly good film viewer. Right. So you have to engage with the genre itself. And then if it does it badly, you know, that's one thing. That's one thing to criticize, but not but being like, oh, this isn't realistic. Just like, no, shit, it's not realistic. They throw tigers at each other at one point. <laughs> like, I, I don't know where you thought in any of this from the very beginning of the film that this was going to be realistic. Yeah. Right. That's not what we're here for. Right. I have some really bad news about the rest of the movie if you're upset about that. <laughs> Well, and that's the thing is like, it probably is a good thing he turned it off. But for me, it's not even that he wasn't willing to engage with it. Although I do think that's a problem, especially if you're going to call yourself a movie pundit, which I don't know what that means. But um, but I just I think if you're not willing to engage with with something, especially something that's so popular um, and it's pretty much the biggest movie in India ever, I think it's the highest grossing Indian film now. Um but anyway, if you're not willing to engage with that, okay, that's your choice. But then to go on Twitter and tell your hundred thousand plus followers, like in such a, in such a smarmy way, that's the thing. It wasn't just like, he, he didn't just say, yeah, I tried watching this. It wasn't for me. I moved on to something else. It was the way that he said it. It was much more like high and mighty way of doing it and that's where the real problem was and it's like he could have just quietly gone about his day and gone and watched the sandman instead but that's you know he chose he chose to make this a thing and then pretended that he was all like oh i'm a victim about this when that is not at all what was going on yeah there there's that there's there's that sense that that um some people have that they're superior to to a film yeah. Um, and, and I admit, I think this, there's definitely some films that I feel superior to. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, to, to and and I think that's that's some of it. Honestly, I would respect it more if he'd actually watched the entire three hour film and then complained about it. Mm-hmm. Um, what I what I find really offensive about it is to watch 15 minutes of it and complain about it. Yeah. Uh, and and again, yeah, you're, you're right. Not not just, you know, whatever. This isn't for me, but like. But like this is bad, and I'm just gonna go. Watch. I'm. I also love. I'm gonna go watch Support Sandman in the credits. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I also love. I'm gonna go watch Sandman. It's just like yes, that is not a uh, unrealistic story at all. <laughs> totally realistic. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I just 
that that whole thing was was very but again the, this is the kind of thing that shows up a lot people do this a lot mm-hmm. and critics do it a lot and there are there are a number of critics of people who call themselves critics who essentially uh you know act as though they are superior to certain types of film and then they turn around and complain when people don't like marvel movies or dc films or something like that's just like well you know why would you ignore this just like well you've got a i mean you know look at this you've got a film that is one of the most popular Indian films ever, right? Is it is incredibly high gross. There's been talks about it being nominated for for Oscars, right? Yep. And and you were just blithely dismissing it within 15 minutes. Why should anyone respect your opinion about film generally if that is your attitude towards a film that is maybe not exactly the kind of thing that you watch all the time? So this this is a good point, actually. I just noticed that we had a, a question from Noah. Oh. Um, so this is a good point to kind of segue into. Uh, Noah asks, would you rather watch a decent 90-minute movie or a great three-hour movie? I would always rather watch a great movie, no matter how long it is. I, I agree with you, Karen. When I first saw that, I was like, well, maybe. like I, I think some of it is also about what kind of mood you're in. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, there are times when I'm like, this is this will probably be a great film. I do not want to turn on a three hour movie right now because um, I know it's it's might take me a couple of days to watch it. Uh, but this yeah, film is 90 minutes I'm just too tired to engage with a three hour yeah. movie or. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but yeah, but my, like between those two, like taking everything, you know, assuming I don't have somewhere to be in two hours or that it's not you know 10 o'clock at night or whatever it for me this is the thing like we get we get a lot of conversations about runtime on movies and like I do think that a three-hour movie should have an intermission I just do um I don't know why they don't do that anymore in India they do intermissions on two-hour movies but um but I just I would always rather watch a great movie and a and a three-hour movie that's a great movie like RRR, it earns that three hours. And yeah. when a movie earns its time, then it's like, I am in. I don't care if it's four or five hours then. I'm probably not going to watch that all at once. I'm probably going to get up and take a break at some point. But I think we, we, you know, we get so hung up on like, oh, why does this movie have to be so long? It's like some movies really do just need more time to tell their stories. And yeah, when they do it well, like the Irishman, you know, what I wouldn't have cut anything from the Irishman, really, for example, you mm-hmm. know, and and that's the thing is like when when someone really knows what they're doing and they really take the time to make it great, I will watch the hell out of a three hour movie. Yeah, I agree. Well, and just just to use RRR as an example, um, again, that that is it's a long film, right? And it keeps on going and you think like, oh, we're coming to a natural conclusion. No, we are not. We've nope. got more to the story. We're only halfway through. Um, and I actually watched that in, I think, I think I watched it over the course of two days. Um, mm-hmm. So I watched about an hour and a half and there was a natural, it was one of those where there was a natural stopping point where I was like, I can stop it here. And kind of it like feels- like an intermission. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, and it feels like, you know, this, this isn't, I'm not in the middle of an action scene or in the middle of a major moment or anything like that. Um, and 
And I, one of the things that is wonderful about a great three-hour film is that you, you, if you do that, you're excited to go back to it. I was, I was like, I can't wait to go to come back tomorrow and watch the rest of this movie because I want to know what happens. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and that there's there's that too. It kind of builds you up. You're just like, this is a lot of fun. I'm enjoying myself, right? I actually want this film to be this long because I want to. I want it to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, so thank you, Noah. Thank you for that question. Uh, Karen, there was a, a IndieWire article that you wanted to talk about a little bit of, of um, the best, the 100 best 90s movies that IndieWire yeah. published last week. Yeah. So what I wanted to talk about, and we're going to link the list, um, but what I really wanted to talk about, and this is something that we've discussed a lot of times on this podcast when we talk about film criticism and we've talked about why it's beneficial to have more and more diverse voices participating in things, uh, participating in conversations and discussions about film and, and especially participating in lists like this. And so, <clears throat> excuse me. So IndieWire assembled a list and um, this came out, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday. And so the article itself is written by David Erla, Kate Erbland, and Eric Cohn. And at first glance, you're just like, okay, this is going to be just one of those lists. The reason that I originally even clicked on the link to read it, what got me intrigued was this got retweeted into my timeline by someone who was complaining that the Shawshank Redemption was not on this list. Now, I think the Shawshank (laughs) Redemption is a good movie. I really do. But the fact that it wasn't on this list and someone was complaining about it made me very intrigued. Okay, if we're talking about 100 best 90s movies and it does not include Shawshank Redemption, what the heck is on this list? And now I'm interested. So I'm sorry, I want to interrupt you really quickly. I do not understand the thing about the Shawshank Redemption. I have (laughs) never understood it. I have it. It tops so many lists of like greatest of all time. Just like, why? why it's good but it's not the greatest yeah exactly it's a fine it's a good film it's welsh it's well made like it's got good actors etc it's you know it there's a lot of of pop culture references now to it etc but why is this shawshank redemption this thing that like that like people named brad love i don't understand it (laughs) exactly anyways sorry go on i just i do not understand the 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 mythos (laughs) around this film and it has been going on since i was like since 1995 it's i I don't get it i i don't get it all right yeah go on sorry (laughs) no no that's that's great thank you for for saying that but yeah so so i hold up the article and i started kind of reading through their intro and it's talking about like oh sure you know we really dived in we wanted to look at you know, political things. You want to look at international. And then they list the contributors who participated in this list and who, you know, all did some of the write-ups and this list, as soon as I started reading, I was like, okay, I'm very intrigued. And so it's like Carlos Aguilar, Samantha Bergeson. Um, I don't know Christian Blovelt, uh, Robert Daniels, Ali Foreman, Promacosla. I'm like, okay, this, this is an interesting group of people. This is a very diverse group of people. And then you start looking through and it's like number 100 ghost dog, the way of the samurai by Jim Jarmusch. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Um, and it's got, you know, it's got near dark. Uh, it's got, um, I'm scrolling through app, the apple by Samira McMalboff. 
um it, it obviously there are some films like um uh fight club made it on here and stuff but just looking through it's such a collection of films from around the world from a lot of filmmakers who normally don't end up on lists like this because the lists are made by a bunch of people that all look the same and all watch the exact same movies and so it was just it it was just so refreshing to read this and to see just like there were a bunch of movies that I was like oh I'm gonna add this to my watch list Strange Days by Catherine Bigelow you know I've never actually seen that and I can't find it anywhere but it was just like you know, we want to, we, you know, people like to talk about Catherine Bigelow being the, the one female director they love, but they're usually referencing the Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. How many of them have really um, watched her older stuff? And not only that, but how, ma- how many of them would ever put it on a best of list, you know? Um, yeah. So it's just, I, I just was really excited about this list, not because this is necessarily anywhere resembling a 100 list that I would make. But because it was just so different um, from everything we see, it has so many films that some of which I had never even heard of, but a lot of which I had never actually seen. And it just it felt like this is the kind of lists that you get when you expand your group and include a lot of different voices that don't normally participate in these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, it it is like when when you sent it to me, I was like, oh god, IndieWire. Um, not <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> not not to dunk on IndieWire. IndieWire does some really good things, but you know they're they're very often very white and very male, um, yes. and and definitely very white. Uh, and and but yeah, it it has a good it has a good mix. And like you say, I think that um, having d- a diversity of critics actually contributing to it, it it means it also just means that you know you get new perspectives, you get better perspectives, um, and you do. And also, if you have knowledgeable critics, you get people who are like actually thinking outside the box. We're thinking beyond Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's essentially like you're thinking beyond the IMDb top 100 lists, right? Yeah. Um, and and actually thinking about you know what are some truly great films from this period. Uh, some of which you know I agree with, some of which I don't. But um, but you do get a much broader, broader understanding of of what what cinema actually is. One thing that did feel a little bit like a plus trolling <laughs> was. They have um, Saving Private Ryan is on here and it's number 70 and then number 69 is Shakespeare in Love. (laughs) I was like, that feels so deliberate and I love it. (laughs) The fact that they just put Shakespeare in Love just one notch above Saving Private Ryan. I just, I thought that was hilarious. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think, I think it is one notch above Saving Private Ryan Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Um, Yeah. Anyway. So we we will definitely link that um, so that everybody can go through. There's some good movies on there. There's some that I actually uh, haven't heard of or haven't really thought about watching. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's that kind of outside of the the 90s weren't just one thing kind of kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so finally, I really wanted to talk a little bit about what we have been watching because uh, I have been watching some interesting things. But one of the films that I think we've both seen is the black phone yes uh which is now available to you can rent it. it is also now available to stream on peacock for free uh, if you have peacock 
I and pulled up Peacock and it was like a premium one. You have to have a subscription. Yeah, you have to have a subscription to Peacock. Um like, like not the not the free one. Yeah. So it's not free on Peacock. You yeah, you have to be subscribed. Like that was a confusion for people because there is a free level of Peacock. Yes, that's true. Yeah. So that's true. So yeah, but I, I think that honestly, like a Peacock subscription costs almost as much as oh, yeah, renting the like, film. Yeah. It's like five dollars a month yeah. or something like that for the lowest one. Yeah, I I have a Peacock subscription because uh, there because I really like Rutherford Falls. And, <laughs> Rutherford Falls is so good. And so I was like, well, I have to get a Peacock subscription again just to just to watch the the new season of Rutherford Falls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but as a result, I watched the Black Phone because honestly, I I probably would not have directly rented this. Yeah. Um. Otherwise. Uh, so the black phone, which uh, came out back in June, is it stars um, Mason Thames as a boy, a 13 year old boy who is kidnapped by a sadistic killer called the Grabber, played by Ethan Hawke, um, and imprisoned in a soundproof basement where all there is is um, a mattress, some rolled up rugs and a black phone on the wall. That is disconnected, and of course, this is this is a horror film. The phone begins ringing, and uh, it it turns out that Finney begins talking to these voices that may be the murdered victims of this killer. Meanwhile, outside, his uh, Finney's sister has some kind of psychic ability in her dreams and is is searching for him and trying to figure out where he has been imprisoned. So this. This was a film that I think a lot of people were really excited about. And then it came out and a number of people really loved it. It's it's very kind of it's very straightforward. Uh is is one way of describing it. Like it 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 does what it says on the tin. You know, this is what it's about. It's about this boy who is who's kidnapped and imprisoned, and about this creepy killer wearing Ethan Hawk wearing a creepy mask. Uh and and kind of about their their sort of cat and mouse game and him trying to figure out how to get out of this this basement um this is one of those films that in watching it i was like everything about this film is fine it's got good actors you know pretty well constructed plot um good you know few good scares not really any jump scares which i'm fine with but like some good suspense etc but i came to the end of the movie and i was like well that was fine Mm-hmm. so what what was your experience of this this film karen because i i i have difficulty kind of decide just like that was fine there was nothing wrong with it but it was just fine yeah no i felt i felt the same um i i uh i think i wanted to like it more than i did um and i think when i first saw it i was just like yeah i i enjoyed that that was pretty good and as over time i've really cooled off on it um because I just, I think that it just, and this was my initial impression too, but now it's gotten to the point where it's like, yeah, no, that was actually kind of not, not good. I feel like it's incomplete. Um, hmm. And w- <laughs> I'm trying to think how to explain that without giving anything away for anybody who is interested in watching it. I'm not going to tell people, don't watch this movie. It's a waste of your time. Cause I don't think it is. I just, I think that there are definitely a lot of things that could have been done better, but when he starts getting the phone calls and they start, you know, each telling him some information, these, these previous boys, um, 
I felt like they kind of, and maybe this was just me watching, but I felt like they kind of uh, skipped over the connective tissue that would have made that more, um, I don't know, like just, it felt more like just a gimmick because of the way Mm -hmm. it's done instead of like, this is really important and these things are all going to um, work together essentially. And uh, like, like I said, I'm trying to figure out how to explain what I mean yeah. without, without actually talking about it and giving without talking about how, how, yeah, the, the ending and everything. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's a good point because if it, it, it feels, and actually it's based on a short story, yeah. it feels like a short story stretched out to a feature length film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of that, so like the, the phone calls, et cetera, it, it does feel very predictable. It's kind of like, oh, okay, now I see what we're, I see where we're going with this. Like, all right. And, and that in itself can be satisfying. Like I was kind of like, I, I kind of, I don't know exactly how this is going to end, but I can kind of see where we're headed. Right. Um, and, and that's, I don't that's, mind a movie being quote unquote predictable if I'm enjoying the journey there. I, well, and that's, I think that's one of the problems. There was, there was miss, there's an element of terror, honestly, that was missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that it has all of the kind of trappings of it. You've got, oh, it's a creepy, creepy basement, soundproof basement, and this vicious killer and the creepy mask and all of that. But I felt like I wanted more menace. Yeah. actually coming from that character and i don't think it's the fault of ethan hawk i think that hawk does a really good job with the character that he has Definitely. um but there's there needed to be something more to that character there needed to and i i'm not saying like an explanation for his behavior or anything like that but there needs to be more of a menace because because everything was kind of going along it was just hitting all of these plot points that i could have said yep here are all the plot points we're gonna hit you know what it is and I mean, this is definitely a spoiler. I'm sorry, but it's also true from the start of the movie. And so if you sit down and watch it, I think you're going to get a big sense. But if you don't want to hear, just fast forward like two minutes. But <clears throat> I think what it is, is there's never a point in the entire movie where I actually thought Finney might not get out of this. Yeah. And even when you watch a movie like you know, there's so many, you know, the rom-com, you know, the couple's going to get together at the end, but there has to be a time where you kind of feel like they might not. Uh, and that was, that's what keeps you going. Even if you fully know they're going to, you still wonder, you know, or like in a Disney movie when you know that everyone's going to live happily ever after, but how is that going to work out? And like, I don't, yeah. you know, like there, it might not happen. And that's the thing with this movie. It's like, there was never a point where I, I ever felt like, Finney is actually in such real danger that he might not escape from this. Yeah. And that's, that was ultimately what kept me from really like, like loving this movie. Yeah. It's, that's a really good point. That's a really good point there. And, and also just in terms of, of hitting those, those marks, you know, there, so there are a couple of, again, this might be a little bit of spoilery, but he tries to escape a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but, you know, I knew like the first time, just like, well, he's not going to succeed because we're 45 minutes into the film. Right. Right. And and again, that can be OK, The but I, there there was just that missing tension that like yeah. that sense of like, even if I know right as a viewer that he's not going to escape because we're only 45 minutes into the film, um, I need to still have that tension of like, but he might. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that it's similar to what you're talking about as well. Yeah. But this, this might be going in a direction that I'm not predicting. Right. Right. Even if it does wind up going in the direction that you are predicting. And, and so I, I think a, a good example of that kind of use of the, of that sort of thing in horror is, um, is something like Psycho, where if you know the story, you know what's going to happen. But every time I watch Psycho, I'm still tense. Yeah. Because I, still, the f- I always think maybe this is the time Marion's going to get away. <laughs> yeah. And truly great horror films, suspense films do that, where you think maybe this is the time that, sh- that she's going to escape. Maybe this is the time where the outcome is going to be different. And of course it's not. But the film kind of fakes you into feeling that because mm-hmm. it's so well constructed. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. There was, there was definitely, there was a, a missing terror. There was a missing tension in what was actually going to happen in this film, you know, possibly taking a different route than we thought. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that's, that's the black phone. It is, you know, it honestly, if you have a Peacock premium subscription and you like, it's a Saturday afternoon, you're like, I want to just watch a scary movie. It's a perfectly decent film, but yeah, I, it's not a bad movie. Yeah, there was just something in it that I was like, this could have been really great. This could have been like the creation of a new, truly fascinating monster. And it never quite gets there. Yeah. Well, and also that's the thing too. Like, I think there are elements that really intrigued me. Like the fact that this is set in the seventies, like, yeah, that's just such a fun. Obviously we have a lot of seventies, like movies from the seventies that are horror movies that are great, like Halloween and um, black Christmas and stuff. But um but I don't know. It was just such a fun throwback. And then and then also really using that that time where, you know, the creeper van and stuff like I mean, I was a child of the 80s and that was a big thing of like, look out for people in vans. They're going to try to kidnap you off the street and stuff. And like so using that as a concept, I thought was was such an interesting yeah. premise and like such a fun um, setting, I guess. But it just didn't, I don't know, the elements just never really fully came together. Well, it like, is, it's a fun movie to watch. Yeah. I mean, like the, the black balloons yeah. and the like the magician and all that. There, There is this like, I, I think that might be one of the other things that's missing is that there's almost a supernatural element to the character or there's a hint of a supernatural element. Yeah. But it's never followed through on like it's just right. kind of like, well, these so it isn't like, you know, and it's it's a different story, obviously, but it isn't like it where you've got the creepy clown. Right. Mm-hmm. Got like, oh, it's a creepy. It's a creepy magician. Magicians can be creepy. Right. Um, but it's it's just like those are just sort of trappings. Yeah, it's not it is never completely followed through on. Same thing with the mask. Right. I, I like the conceit of like the different parts of the mask, him wearing different pieces of it and different faces. Mm-hmm. um and and things like that but again it feels like it's a trapping it doesn't feel like it's truly terrifying whereas you get something like halloween right yeah where the very simple use of a very simple mask is terrifying mm-hmm. um yeah, exactly good point yeah and, and it just it just never quite gets there never yeah. quite gets there anyways so was there anything else that you've been watching karen that you wanted to talk about um so two things. One, I mean, it's gone now, but my mom and I went and saw E.T. and IMAX this week and because they did a one week only screen. Oh, that's it. cool. <laughs> and it was so much fun. I mean, that is one of my all time favorite movies. It's one of my all time favorite movie scores. 
it's the 40th anniversary this year because it originally came out in 1982 and i just i love that movie i haven't seen it on the big screen since like i don't know when um but it was really funny because <laughs> i told this story on my other podcast but um it was really funny because it was re-released in 1986 and my dad took me and my brother to see it and um we were at this movie theater like kind of in a mall and we were early so we were waiting for the um for it to be time to just go in and so my dad starts telling this story about how when it had originally come out in 82 uh he and my mom went on a double date with a couple of their friends to see it and on the way out of the theater um my dad and his friend my dad's telling me the story he said that he and his friend um started just like as they're walking past people who are waiting in line to go in to see it next they're like oh it's so sad when he dies my dad's telling the story like it's hilarious and i'm nine years old and i'm just like what and he goes no no no, it was funny it was funny and i was like et dies (laughs) and my dad's just like don't you remember the movie and i said I don't remember that he died. <laughs> so my dad's like, no, 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 it's fine. Just, just watch the movie. It's fine. I was like, I don't want you now if he dies. And so my dad <laughs> like calmed me down and explained it. So when my mom and I went and saw this the other day and my parents got divorced actually in 1986, but, um, but anyway, so I was telling my mom this story, um, uh, about how dad had told me that and stuff. And she starts, she's like, oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. We were with Bob and Janet and they hadn't seen it before. And we were walking to the <laughs> theater and someone else was doing that. So your dad and Bob on the way out. And it was so funny. My mom totally confirmed this story <laughs> like 35 years later. And, um, it was just so funny. And I was, but also just the fact that, yeah, my dad tells me this thinking it's just a funny story. And he ended up horrifying me about the movie <laughs> itself. <laughs> anyway but it was great it was so fun to see it in IMAX and um or just in the theater again in general but it was really funny because you can you can see certain elements that um just have like degraded a little bit over time like as Mm -hmm. film quality changes and as transfers happen and stuff like in the opening shot you see the night sky you see the stars and everything but it's so funny because just watching it on this giant imax screen it's like oh that's either canvas or wood that that's painted on now i can actually see the grain like you know stuff like that where it's it's just like not pristine anymore but it just makes it just kind of a little bit fun too those little little details or you could tell oh that's definitely you know when they're looking out over the town from up on an overlook and it's like oh yeah that's that's painted that's not that's not a real view you know this isn't from the mountains you know or whatever but i just love that movie so much and it was just it was fun to get to see it again Um, that's that's really cool that's that's a good argument for seeing some of those older films on actually on a bigger screen because it is that it's that willing suspension of disbelief too because those those images would have been at some level visible right you know Mm -hmm. It's like you can always tell when they're doing um, uh, back projection on on older films, or it's just like right, they're not right. actually driving, they're not actually walking, <laughs> or yeah, exactly. through this the scenery, and you can see, you can tell, you know, and and people at the time could probably tell as well. But there's there's a sort of you're still entering into the fiction that the film is giving you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 
it's fun and um they're going to be doing jaws in two weeks so oh that would be great to see on a big screen labor day weekend yeah so that's going to be really fun too so i'm i'm excited i'm definitely going to go go see that and i strongly encourage people to to just take the opportunity because we don't get these chances very often Mm -hmm. this is the thing when people like spielberg want to complain about streaming and it's like but dude do you know how many people like we were sitting there and there was a family down the same row from us and it was a mom and a dad and a little girl who looked like she was about four or five so she was probably about the age i was the first time i saw et and it's like and it just occurred to me like you know how many people have never seen this movie on the big screen and so it's like for him to to rail against streaming services that's how most people have experienced most of his movies (laughs) so yeah that's that's small screen one way or another whether you know you're brought up in the vhs era or um television yeah uh or now blu-ray dvd uh um and streaming it's that's that's how you're going to experience a lot of those those films to start with i i've never seen jaws on the big screen i haven't either i haven't (laughs) either Mm -mm. i've seen that movie a million times i've never seen it in a theater and and that's the thing. So it's like take those opportunities when you get them, but also that's not the only way to watch a movie, yeah. obviously. So exactly. yeah. So there was that. And then also just the other thing I wanted to mention, and I did um make this my recommendation this week too, but She Hulk is out. She Hulk Attorney at Law is out on Disney Plus. And I got to see the first four episodes. The first one is out now, but um they sent me the first four. And it feels very much like a TV show. Whereas, you know, WandaVision and Hawkeye and stuff, those have felt like movies. This definitely feels like a TV show, but I just thought it was so much fun. I think Tatiana Maslany as the main character is just, she's great. I love her. Um, She gets to be, you know, a little bit, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Like it's, it's a show where she gets to be a sexual person, you know, and it's like, (laughs) Oh, they do this in Marvel stuff now. Like, this is great, you know? And, um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's just fun. It's silly. It's, it's definitely not as polished of a project as we've seen from other areas of the MCU, but that's part of why I liked it so much. So I think if someone, you know, if you're into this stuff and, and, uh, you have Disney plus check it out. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, I wanted to I wanted to mention two other things. And actually, you just reminded me that I just rewatched this film. It's talking about films that for, for good or ill shaped your childhood. Um, I, I recently rewatched So I Married an Axe Murderer. I uh, fucking love that movie. <laughs> which which I think that my parents showed it to me because I loved Wayne's World. And so they're like, oh, she likes Mike Myers. Let's show her. So I married an axe murderer. Um, I was too young for it. Mom and dad, if you're listening, <laughs> it scared the bejesus out of me. Like, and now watching it, I'm like, this is not scary. But at the time, <laughs> I was terrified of it. Also, I did not understand the humor. Um, I did not know why this was funny at all. This was a horrible story about a man who marries a potential axe murderer <laughs> to me. That's what it was. I mean, that's what it is. <laughs> I mean, that is what it is. It's uh, if no one has seen it, it, it's available on Hulu, and um, and I just saw it in like my recommendation. It's also available at my house, so you can just come on over because <laughs> I have that movie. <laughs> 
And uh, it is, you know, Mike Myers is very charming in it. I have to say he's he's such an unusual kind of leading man type, but he's very cute. And you're very like, I totally understand why this woman would fall in love with him because she is, because he's just very like, oh, he's being goofy and he's being adorable and everything. It's about Mike Myers, who is a, a, a poet in San Francisco. Um, who is like always resisting, like going too far in a relationship because he's afraid of getting hurt. And he makes up these these weird ideas about the woman that he's involved with. He gets very paranoid. <laughs> she so. smelled like soup. She smelled like soup. She was in the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> the Cosa Nostra. <laughs> uh, but and... I have that movie memorized. So. <laughs> and so he he meets this, this woman at a butcher shop and um, becomes involved with her. And decides like this time I'm not going to you know any of the weird any like little weird things I'm just going to ignore them because I'm not going to get paranoid about this. But it becomes more and more apparent that she might be a killer, like a serial killer. <laughs> um, as like you know there are all of these references and his mother who is Scottish and played by Fiona Shaw is uh, is obsessed with like news of the world. And isn't it Brenda Fricker? I thought it was Fiona Shaw. I'm, I might be wrong about that. Never mind. Um, and his father, who's played by Mike Myers, is <laughs> just this random ass Scottish character who has no real influence on the plot whatsoever. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a very entertaining film, I have to say, and not frightening <laughs> the way that I thought it was when I was nine or however old I was when that movie so came out. Funny. I love Anthony LaPaglia in that too. His He's great. Tony. Yeah. And uh, and Alan Arkin. As mm-hmm. as his as like uh, Anthony Lapalia's boss, who's yeah. like the, who he's always complaining he's about. He's just you're not you're not mean enough. Why aren't you mean to me? You need <laughs> to like be like, like no. Captain in Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is a very fun film, and uh, and yeah, you can stream it on Hulu. So definitely check it out. The other thing that I want to recommend is the the. Uh, I hope we talk about this again a little bit later when you've had a chance to watch some of it, Karen, because. The A League of Their Own um, Prime series is fantastic. And I went into it going like people were saying, like, oh, this is such a queer, this is such a queer show. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then within the first episode, I'm like, this is a queer show. <laughs> wow. Nice. Um, yeah, I'm going to watch it this weekend for sure. Yes, it, it is. A, it's very good. It's very well done. And I, I like the fact that it's going to obviously explore a lot more of this this world than the film, which is is fantastic um you know was able to do within you know two hours so anything else i think that's going to close us out yeah i think that's about it for today watch more movies watch more movies we will try and list some of the films that we have discussed uh on our ongoing list on letterboxd um which is on at citizen dame you can find us on letterbox we have many fun lists we want to as always thank our patrons who include adriana ali brian connor estefania heather james kathleen carietta mason matt michelle monty nanina robert robert steve sharon Tao, and will thank you so much for continuing to support us you guys uh we hope to have some new bonus content coming out really really soon um, if you want to join them, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash citizen dame. You do get fun things. The buttons that I have managed to get out to some people are really cool and I enjoy them and I'm wearing them all around myself. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so, yeah, you can join that and get some fun bonus content, bonus episodes, bonus articles, things like that. We also have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod and our Ko-Fi account, co-fi.com slash citizen dame. Um, you could go and read our reviews and various things on our website, citizendamepod.com. I should have a couple new things going up within the next week or so. So watch out for that. And I think Karen has a few things as well. Yeah. You can also send us an email. We are on we are at citizendamepod at gmail.com. Please be nice. And finally, you could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. And of course on Letterboxd at Citizen Dame. Uh so yes, uh Karen, where are you on all of your various social medias? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. I think that will close us out for this week. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye. I broke up with those girls for very good reasons. Oh, really? Yes. Really? What about Jill? She was in the Mafia. She was in the Mafia? Yes, the Cosa Nostra. The whole time we went out, she didn't tell me what she did for a living. Charlie, she was unemployed. She didn't have a job. Well, that's just the perfect cover now, isn't it? All right, all right. What about Pam? She smelled like soup. What does that mean? She smelled exactly like beef vegetable soup. Charlie, you're paranoid. But you weren't there. It's all in your head. No, no.